0: I think this is going to flip. I think that the seismic activity will slow down. And I think at some point, we're going to go back to a negative phase of the AMO. And I think the temperatures are going to cool down and, and the whole system's going to calm down. And a lot of people are going to walk around with a lot of egg on their face. My guest today is Arthur Vitorito. I'm a retired professor of physical geography. I uh, spent nearly 40 years in the, uh, the academic uh, warrior world. And uh, uh, I have a specialty in physical geography with uh, interest in climatology and geographic information systems. And uh, I have been working on this this whole issue of what's been causing the recent warming now since about 2007, since uh, the time that Al Gore's um, documentary came out on this, uh, The Inconvenient Truth. I have been inconveniently trying to find the real truth in all of this. And I've come up with what I referred to as the geothermal paradox, a a hypothesis that most people have overlooked and or ignored or have criticized in some very weird ways. So I I hopefully be able to present this to you today uh, because I believe it's this geothermal paradox that's driving the most recent warming that we've seen since the the mid-90s. Now, until recently, there's been very little research on the impact of geothermal heat on global temperatures. The uh, The reason there's been so little interest in it is because we really don't have a, a, a large amount of geothermal heat relative to what the sun puts out. We're talking very, very small amounts relative to the solar output, and most people have been focused on that, or they, of course, have been focused on the role of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas causing the most recent warming. So. We're gonna take a look at this. And as we can see here, uh, most geothermal heat for the planet um, is found in the middle of the world's oceans in what are called the mid-ocean spreading zones, um, um, also called the mid-ocean ridge system. And we see that the vast majority of the mid-ocean heat is found here in the uh, East Pacific in uh, an area referred to as the East Pacific rise, down here in what is referred to as the mid-Atlantic ridge, and we have a number of ridges and rise uh, complexes out here in the Indian and uh, Southern Oceans. In fact, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge has gotten a lot of attention recently because there's been a tremendous amount of volcanic activity in Iceland. Uh, They've had to evacuate whole towns. And what it really is, is that's the northern edge of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that's been very active lately, uh, also known as the Ricanus Ridge as we get off the coast. So this area has been very active recently and I've looked at this and said, okay, how is that activity varied through time and space? Because obviously it has. And here we see a map of the uh, uh, 60,000 kilometer long system of underwater uh, volcanic mountains, uh, and uh, what are referred to as hydrothermal vents. And this is called the mid-ocean ridge system. We, we, again, see this is very, very well mapped out. They have uh, done the mapping through sonar and LIDAR. Uh, technologies, we have a pretty good understanding of uh, the the macro geography, so to speak, of the ocean floors. Now, the the mid-ocean ridge system is an area uh, also referred to as a rift zone. It's an area we have what is referred to as normal faulting. It's an area where the lithosphere, the the crust, is being pulled apart, and we yes. can see here that as the crust is being pulled apart, a new oceanic crust is being formed along what is called the spreading zone centers. So along this rich zone, we tend to have lots and lots of volcanic and what's called hydrothermal activity. Uh hot magma reaches up, percolates to the surface, heats the water uh, sitting directly above it, and this can, this we can see causes some serious changes or significant changes to uh, what goes on in terms of the deep ocean circulation. If we focus in on this, we can see here uh, a cross-sectional view of this. We have uh, what are called black smokers and white smokers. The black smokers uh, can reach temperatures of 700 degrees Fahrenheit, white smokers, three to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course we have this massive system of vents uh, and fissures where we have lots of water percolating through the system, uh, exchanging heat with the uh, with the mantle underneath it. Now, here's why I call this the geothermal paradox, because uh, the average uh, geothermal flux at the surface is just one tenth of a watt per square meter, um, and people say, "Well, this isn't enough heat to really make a difference on the in terms of the uh, uh, global climate." Um, but nonetheless, we know that geothermal heat does a tremendous amount of work. Uh, it's able to move the Pacific plate four inches per year. It widens the Atlantic basin by one inch per year. Um, it can eject enough ash to cool the globe many degrees Celsius, uh, Krakatoa, Tambora. Um, and it can eject ash and water 35 miles into the atmosphere as it did in the Tonga eruption uh, in early in uh, 2022. So, we'll say, okay, we have the system yeah. of underwater volcanic vents and uh, hydrothermal vents and volcanoes. What's going on here? We know that we have no or very few direct measurements of this. Uh, specialty research uh, has done some research on this, uh, things like Scripps uh, and uh, Columbia Laurent Doherty have done some work on this. But we have to use what are known as a proxy indicators in this case. So in this case, I will read you the quote. This is, this is citing from uh, an article in Nature. Seafloor uh, sea hydrothermal systems are known to respond to seismic and magmatic activity along mid-ocean ridges, often resulting in locally positive changes in hydrothermal discharge rate, temperature, and microbial activity. Corresponding regional effects have also been observed. So the more seismic activity we have, in these mid-ocean ridge systems, the more magma and the more heat we know is being emitted from these systems. Now, as I said, we don't have a lot of uh, data on the the direct heat flow, but we do have a global uh, system of seismographs that has very accurately and uh, very meticulously uh, plotted the amount of seismic activity that we find on the ocean floor in these mid-ocean systems. So we're going to use that as our proxy indicator, knowing that uh, high seismic activity in the mid-ocean system uh, also correlates with very, very high uh, hydrothermal heat coming up. We know that these hydrothermal systems cover large areas of the mid-ocean ridges and their flanks. And we know that most of the hydrothermal heat loss occurs on the flanks of these uh, ridges and the temperatures are lower and the seawater flux is correspondingly larger. The estimated the heat loss on the flanks is so large that upwelling or convective activity must occur over a large fraction of the seafloor less than 65 million years in age. And this is a very, very important point because what it says is that the more hydrothermal activity you're going to have, the more convection you're going to have at the bottom of the ocean. And this is critically important because it affects what is referred to as the thermohaline circulation, also referred to as the meridional overturning circulation. It is the giant conveyor belt that moves heat uh, and mass along the entire ocean system. And this is a game changer because if we can cause greater convection on the ocean floor, we can change the intensity of this thermal haline circulation. The oceans contain, as, as contain 1,000 times as much heat as the atmosphere, and this in turn enables geothermal heating to enhance the ocean's ability to transfer heat. If you want an, uh, an analog to this, it's sort of like a thermostat in an in, automobile in uh, cooling system. If that thermostat is open, then the water can freely circulate and you get a very even temperature distribution. And in fact, your your car will never get up to what's called running temperature. But if you have choke points that in the case of of an automobile, if you close that thermostat, all of a sudden, you now start to transfer heat in some very profound ways, i.e. your car gets up to running temperature and you can actually heat the interior car. So we see the same thing going on here. That is, the additional geothermal heating at the bottom, which is indicated by increased seismic activity at the bottom, can also affect the intensity at which this uh, geothermal, uh, the thermohaline circulation moves through the system. And here we see this in three dimensions. We see that the surface currents are denoted here in red. And the bottom water currents Uh, are denoted here in in, uh, blue. Now what happens is that we have distinct areas of what's called upwelling and downwelling in the system. That is, here uh, in the Arctic, we have what is called downwelling. That is surface water moves up into the system through the North Atlantic and then downwells into the Atlantic bottom water. It then circulates through the system And it comes back up here in the Pacific uh, and also uh, over here in the corner, its diagram isn't quite detailed enough, but we can see that there is some upwelling here around Antarctica. So what we have here are distinct areas of upwelling, as I said, uh, Antarctica goes just south of South America, and then downwelling of water moving downward over Iceland. And this is critically important. Because and we have to sort of cite the literature on this, and this is where people tend to ignore uh, things. Although the ocean is largely heated and thermally driven at the surface, several recent studies suggest that the ocean geothermal heating can also affect the ocean dynamic and heat budget. By applying spatially constant or variable heat flux in the ocean general circulation models forth with the present-day climate, it is shown that ocean geothermal heating is a significant forcing that can weaken the stability of the water column, warm the bottom water, and strengthen this thermohaline circulation. So this conveyor belt doesn't move at a constant rate of speed. It can be stead up or it can be slowed down. And this has profound uh, importance. Other studies say that the, uh, the destabilizing geothermal heat flux tends to promote a more vigorous full-depth overturning, having approximately 10% greater volume flux than with no bottom heating. And this, this, is, this is really important. If you can increase the rate at which the ocean overturns its water by 10%, you're going to have some significant impacts from this. Geothermal heating induces a substantial change in the deep circulation, which is larger than previously assumed. The numerical ocean model responds most strongly in the Indo-Pacific with an increase of meridional overturning of 1.8 sphere drops. A sphere drop is 1 million cubic uh, meters of water per second. So we're talking uh, rather large quantities of water here. For example, the global rivers uh, produce about one and a half sphere drops. This roughly equals the total output of the oceans. So the overturning is uh, enhanced or intensified by up to 25 percent due to ocean due to the, ocean, uh, due to the uh, geothermal heating at the bottom. It is known that geothermal heat strongly intensifies. This is from a, a study in Journal uh, of Geophysical Research. It is known that the geothermal heat strongly intensifies meridional, meridional overturning circulations. The Atlantic enhancement in the globally heated experiment uh, is much weaker than ours. And this might be because of the difference of the magnitude of the geothermal heat flux. So we know that differences in the in the heat flux, which is going to reflect in the seismic activity, um, uh, greatly impacts the the rate at which the ocean overturns. And finally, uh, another study here that uh, appeared in Geophysical Research Letters says the abyssal warming around uh, Antarctica is one of those prominent multi signals of change in the global ocean. Here we investigate its dynamic impacts on the Atlantic meridional overtur- overturning circulation, which we'll talk about later. This is, this is a critically important component of the system. The simulation suggests that the ongoing warming of Antarctic bottom water, uh, already affecting much of the Southern Hemisphere at a rate of up to 500 hundredths of a degree C per centigrade, has important implications for the large scale meridional overturning circulation in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay? So we know that excess heating at the bottom affects what happens in the North Atlantic in terms of uh, surface movement of water and, and subsequently movement of water back down. So, knowing this, if we start to put things together, we say, well, what has happened with these mid-ocean zones in terms of their seismic activity? Knowing that the greater seismic activity that we have is indicative of greater geothermal, geothermal heating. This is well-established in the literature. Nobody is arguing this. So what I've done here is I've taken the mid-ocean uh, uh, spreading zone activity, which I call MOSIA, since 1977, um, and I've uh, culled this data from what's called the GCMT catalog. It's put out by Columbia University. It's a complete catalog of seismic events uh, going back to 1977. And we notice that the amount of seismic activity had come up since late 70s and into the mid-80s, then actually flattened out and came down a bit. And then in 1995, we have an inflection point where the mid-ocean seismic activity uh, trended back upward and has continued back upward since then. So 1995 is a critical inflection point in our system here. And that gives us a lot of clues that I will present to you in just a moment. Global temperatures from 1979 have uh, first been reported from satellite data uh, since 1979 through, I have this down through 2022, we haven't finished 2023 yet. And here we see a similar pattern, that is the, University of Alabama Huntsville temperature data plot for global temperatures is very similar to the data plot that we see for the seismic activity. There is one significant point in all this. If we look at the dates real carefully, our plot here starts in 1977, and our plot here starts in 1979. So the seismic activity, we plot back to 1977, the global temperatures back to 1979. This is the first year we had satellite data. Uh, This is as far back, actually this data set goes back to 1976, but uh, we'll explain why we started with 77 in just a minute here. So we see the shape of the two curves is very similar, but there appears to be an offset by two years. So if we match the 1977 data for seismic activity with the 1979 global temperatures, and then go for 1978 seismic activity and match it up with 1980. In other words, if we factor in a two-year lag, we end up with this composite curve. This composite curve shows global temperatures plotted against mid-ocean seismic activity with a two-year lag. And this has an extremely, what we call, goodness of fit. And in fact, it even has a a goodness of fit that corresponds with all of the El Nino and La Nina episodes. And these are the spikes up and down that we see in the system. And we see that the the match here is extremely good. We have a correlation coefficient of 0.74, which is extremely high. And the probability, this this is a remarkable number, the probability that these two curves match up this well uh, as a as a chance occurrence, there's something like one 100th uh, one millionth of a percent. It's an incredibly small number. This, this has to be a meaningful correlation. And I hear this all the time. It's like, well, you know, correlation isn't causation. I said, but when you have a goodness of fit that's this tight with that kind of a ridiculous probability value, you know something is going on. And I think it's incumbent upon the research uh, disciplines involved in this to look at this. Well, I have. And another thing that jumps out here, and we're gonna hopefully tie this all together by the end of the discussion. Hopefully people will be able to see this. If we look at the decadal temperature trends from uh, December 1978 through December 2022, We see some interesting things. This again is from uh, Roy Spencer's data at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. We see that we have, yes, quote unquote global warming, but the vast majority of it occurs up in the North Polar region. This is referred to as the Arctic amplification, which we're gonna spend some time with. We also see a secondary peak here in the Northern Hemisphere extratropics. And then as we move down, past the northern hemisphere extratropics into the tropics, southern hemisphere extratropics into the South Pole, we see less and less warming. And this kind of the skewed distribution tells us something else has to be going on here, that there is a very uneven distribution in the way that, that the globe is warming. Now, if the global warming as a result of carbon dioxide, which is what the catastrophists are telling us, we would expect to see a much more even distribution of temperature. But here we see that the global temperature anomalies are very heavily skewed towards the North polar region and the Northern hemisphere extratropics. And this is a remarkable chart here that people choose to ignore. So if we look at the thermal haline flow in more detail, We see that there are two very important, what I call choke points in the system. Excuse me, one is here in the Western Pacific and the other is here in the North Atlantic slash Arctic. That is in the open Pacific, there is in the central Pacific, there are no restrictions to the flow. But as we get here into the Western Pacific, we see that the thermohaline circulation runs into Australia, Malaysia, Indonesia. It hits a topographic barrier effectively. Then as it squeezes out through here to the Indian Ocean, again, no barriers, and then it wraps around. And then we see here that it runs into a, what I would call a cul-de-sac, the Arctic Basin, which is an enclosed basin. It has no place to go, and but it does find a place to go. It goes downward. So these two choke points, I believe, are significant in our um, in our scheme of things. The next twelve sides are going to provide concrete evidence that starting in nineteen ninety five, the intensified thermal haline circulation significantly impacted temperatures along with a host of other geophysical phenomena in the North Atlantic and the Arctic. So. 1995, to, to scroll back here, you can see here is our inflection point when the seismic activity started to spike upward. And I wrote a paper on this called 1995, an important inflection point in recent geophysical history. First, we see that we have an abrupt shift in what's called the Atlantic multi-decadal Oscillator. And this changes, the oscillator changes in 1995. It flips from negative, meaning cooler North Atlantic uh, temperatures, to warmer North Atlantic temperatures. This uh, uh, AMO index has been positive uh, since, as we said, nineteen ninety-five, and this is not disputed. I mean, this is this is directly from uh, this is NOAA's data, and here we see anomalously high temperatures associated with that positive AMO, and again, we see anomalously high temperatures here in the North Atlantic and up into the Arctic. And we also see anomalously high temperatures here in the Pacific. The Southern Hemisphere is very unremarkable, which matches up very, very nicely with this. So obviously there's been a change in the AMO, which we've documented, um, and nobody's commenting on this. They're saying, well, it's called dioxide. Well, okay, but Southern Hemisphere, no such problem. Now, an incredibly important study was done recently in uh, uh, 2020, and the rapid change in the AMO index is clearly reflected in an abrupt change in the phytoplankton populations in the Arctic. So here we see real-world evidence that backs up the, the temperature distribution. So we see another geophysical system in this case, the biosphere, has been impacted by this. So uh, Ozeal and I'll say that the Arctic marine biome, shrinking with increasing temperature and receding uh, sea ice cover, is tightly connected to the lower latitudes through the North Atlantic. By flowing towards the... Uh, the by, f- by flowing north through the European Arctic corridor, the main Arctic gateway, where 80% of inflow in and outflow takes place, the North Atlantic, Atlantic waters transport most of the ocean heat, but also nutrients and planktonic planktonic organisms towards the Arctic Ocean. Using satellite-derived altimetry, uh, we reveal an increase up to twofold in North Atlantic current surface velocities over the last 24 years. The date of the publication is 2020. And over the last 24 years, that takes us to 1996. One year past, we should be inflection point in 1995. We also see an abrupt increase starting in 1995. Here it is designated by this tall bar and uh, Atlantic hurricanes and what's called their accumulated energy. ACE is called the uh, accumulated cyclonic energy for these systems. So when the AMO flips into a warm phase, we see a shut, sudden jump in the, uh, the intensity of hurricanes and in their frequency in the North Atlantic. Here we see a lull during the negative phase, during the cold phase, and here we see a, uh, a jump up back here, uh, in their, uh, back in the 1950s uh, uh, and 60s, due again to the positive phase. We also saw, this is a study that was in uh, uh, Science Advances, we also saw the beginning of a decline in cloud cover over Greenland in 1995. This makes sense because higher temperatures lead to a greater ability of the overlying atmosphere to hold more water vapor. So, again, we see this sharp 1995 decrease in cloud cover. Global cloud cover also started to decline in 1995. And we see this is from the satellite application facility. And we see here in 1995, here's our inflection point. We see it then starts to move downward and now we have reduced cloud cover. We also see changes in freeze and breakup days of ice in the Hudson Bay started again in 1995. Here is our 1995 marker. We see this jump up. We also saw rapid warming, what's called the North Atlantic Subpolar Gyre commencing in 1995. Here the demarcation is very, very strongly uh, demarcated and we see this jump up, and here's what the subpolar gyre looks like. It is actually an offshoot of the North Atlantic current. Commencing in 1995, there was an above change in fall and spring Arctic temperatures. Here's our 1995 breakpoint. This is from the Danish Meteorological Institute, and we see here uh, the breakpoint is very distinct. And the winter temperatures, they followed suit a little bit later. They were they were uh, a bit of a ladder in nice. this. Northern hemisphere sea ice also started to decline in 1995. Here we see again our inflection point. Here we see things move upward in sea ice in the mid to late 80s. And then starting in 1995, here's our inflection point. Boom, it's downward since then. So, we see that enhanced thermohaline flow is going to intensify the flow of water from the South Atlantic into the North Atlantic. If we head back here, we notice that right around the equator, this is where we start to see an increase in temperatures in the North Atlantic. If you intensify the thermohaline flow, keep in mind, if you follow the arrow, the thermohaline flow moves like this, Southwestward through the Indian Ocean, rounds the Horn of Africa, and comes up here in the North Atlantic. If you intensify that flow, that means more heat uh, and uh, more mass, more water, is being transported from the southern hemisphere, the subtropics and the tropics of the southern hemisphere, into the northern hemisphere. Here we see that subpolar gyre, showing excessive amount of heating. And what you have now is more heat, more water being transported from the South Atlantic into the North Atlantic. Now in the Pacific, we see something else going on. Enhanced thermohaline flow is gonna cause warm, warm water to accumulate in the Western Pacific. They, what we call the physiographic and bathymetric features of that region, re- region restrict the flow of the equatorial current, creating a vast reservoir of warm water and with that, that's a driving force behind uh, El Nino events. So as you can see here, water has to move through some very, very narrow choke points to get from the Pacific into the Indian Ocean. And here we see that north and south equatorial currents. We can see that they move here from the eastern Pacific, make a beeline straight across the Pacific into the western Pacific. What we get as a result of this, and this is well-documented in the literature, is we get what is referred to as the Western Pacific Warm Pool. And this represents a massive store of heat that can redistribute heat across the entire Pacific Basin when pressure and wind conditions switch from what we call a neutral phase to an El Nino phase. So what happens is that if you intensify the thermohaline flow, this Western Pacific Warm Pool can change. This This is naturally occurring. But if you intensify the flow across the Pacific, this warm pool becomes uh, more intense and it becomes larger. And a recent study showed this very, very nicely. Um, uh, This was in, uh, this is by um, Kidwell et al. And we see here a comparison of the 1993 heat content of the Western Pacific warm pool, which is the top image, and the warm pool past that date in uh, 2014. And if we look at this really carefully, we see that A, the temperature, the heat content is significantly higher than it is in 1993. And we see that the area of that warm pool has increased. An intensified flow in the Pacific will do that. If you're pushing more water across the Pacific, that warm pool will get bigger and it will get warmer. In addition to that, the thermohaline, the uh, uh, the thermocline, which represents the dividing line between warm water and cold water, also jumped abruptly in around nineteen ninety five. We see here that the difference in the uh, uh, thermocline depth from nineteen eighty two to two thousand twenty two. Jumped up precisely right after the last El Nino, which was in 1998, the the mega El Nino, which was in 1998. This is the uh, the last El Nino of the cooler period. We see this demarcation point. There is a 30-foot difference or a 10-meter difference in the thermocline depth, which is a lot. So uh, here's a map from the 2015 super El Nino, which shows the deepened and obviously warm Western Pacific warm pool. It spreads out over an immense area. If you increase the size of this of this uh, warm pool and you kick off an El Nino, which is naturally occurring, they are going to increase the size um, uh, of that El Nino. The warmer waters are going to cover a much larger area. It's the difference between taking a paintbrush and painting a small area of your wall and throwing a whole can of paint up against the wall. You just got more paint to work with, you're gonna cover a, uh, a larger area. Now, the strengthening of the Western Pacific warm pool is also warmed and strengthened what is referred to as the Kuroshio current and the Kuroshio extension. Here we see the Kuroshio current, which is off the east coast of Asia, It turns and then moves out into the central Pacific to become what we call the Kuroshio extension. And here we see a detailed map of this. Here's here's your uh, Indo-Pacific warm pool. And off of that, what is fed from that is the uh, Kuroshio current, which is warm water. It's called the boundary current. It moves up the uh, uh, east coast of, uh, let's see, west, western boundary edge of the Pacific Basin the east coast of Asia, and then the Courteshire Extension, which moves out into the middle of the Pacific. So, as reported uh, in, a, in a, a study done uh, by Adrian et al., Adrian Lamb, we see that the warmth stems from the surface waters that collect in the Western Pacific Ocean during the equator, called the Western Pacific Warm Pool, the Kurashio current takes these waters north past the Japanese coast and then eastward uh, at 36 degrees north latitude, where it joins the open Pacific. At this point, it becomes the Kurashio current extension. Today, these currents are warming two to three times faster than other areas of the ocean. Ocean model studies and observational data show the Kurashio current is shifting northward and increasing its transport capacity. Again, and enhanced thermohaline flow will do exactly that. As we can see, the Western Pacific warm pool has increased in size, in depth, um, and in, in seat content. And as a result, this has impacted the Kuroshio current and the Curoshio extension. And here we can see this, this was from April. Here we can see the warmer waters of the Curashio current and its extension out into the central Pacific. Here we see the beginnings of the current Del Nino, and here we see the warming of the current current. Here we also see the subpolar gyre. So, if we take this up to a recent snapshot, this is taken from August 18th, we can see all of the things that we've highlighted in this talk are expressed in the global uh, sea surface temperatures. So, this is the NOAA map of sea surface temperature anomalies. Of course, the red areas indicate warmer than normal sea surface temperatures. We see here that the subpolar gyre has heated up. We see here that the Arctic Ocean has gotten much, much warmer. By the way, the, the term for this is called the Arctic amplification. And it's, again, well-documented in the literature. That this process known as Atlantification, that is the incursion of Atlantic waters, has caused this Arctic amplification. So here we see very warm waters in the in the Arctic. The subpolar gyre has definitely heated up. We see the heating up of the Kuroshio current and the Kuroshiu extension, and finally an enhanced El Nino. So this Western Pacific warm pool, once you dissipate it, that excess heat and that greater volume of water. Is going to express itself in a warmer Perseido and a warmer El Nino. So, in summary, of trying to figure out why CO two is causing things to warm, we can see that the models do a terrible job with that. We really should be looking at this. And this is a sort of a a unifying hypothesis as to what's going on here. And we've we've hit all the main points in our discussion here. That is greater mid-ocean geothermal flux driven by increased mid-ocean seismic activity. We're connecting a lot of dots here, but they all do connect up. This intensifies the thermohaline circulation. Now, when you intensify the thermohaline circulation, those two choke points, the Arctic and the Western Pacific warm pool react in somewhat predictable ways. If we look at the Pacific Basin, we see that increased oceanic heat transport into the Western Pacific, then amplifies our El Ninos and our Kuroshio current, which gives us increased Pacific tropical and extratropical temperatures. In the Atlantic sector, increased oceanic heat transport into the North Atlantic and the Arctic, gives us less cloud, lower ice, and that feeds back into the system when you have less cloud cover and lower ice, you have less reflectivity in the Arctic, and that increases our North Atlantic temperatures and this sets up a, a positive feedback loop in the Arctic where it's going to keep enhancing the uh, the Arctic temperatures so the the Arctic amplification is very well very well accounted for in this in this model, as is the shear warming in the amplified El Ninos this um uh, I've got a, a, a slightly more, um, a slightly cleaner version of this, uh, and this is uh, this is, this paper is in review right now. I've got a have got a paper coming out on this. So, what are the critics saying about this? I, I've gotten all kinds of weird criticisms from this, from and both. Most of it's been informal, uh, third party. I've heard through other people that they don't like this. Um. So for example, let me, let me just cite one and then we'll go through this laundry list here. One, one researcher said to me, a prominent researcher said, I don't see that 1995 inflection point you're talking about. Obviously things changing in 1995. And I went, okay, um, somebody needs a better eye plan. But the first argument that's made is that there's not enough heat escaping to the surface to directly warm the overlying ocean atmosphere, uh, overlying ocean and atmosphere to an appreciable degree. And the high correlation between mid ocean seismic activity and global temperatures did, does not signify causality, as spurious results can arise if confounding variables are omitted from the experimental design. All right, this is, this is grad school 101 experimental design stuff that, that's being thrown out here. We could easily refute these arguments in the following way. Although there is not enough heat to directly warm the atmosphere, we have modeling evidence showing that oceanic geothermal heat intensifies the thermal haline circulation. That intensified flow acts as a heat pump to distribute an increased amount of oceanic heat to to major heat sinks, the North Atlantic and the Arctic, and the Western Pacific. We've documented this. we have irrefutable empirical evidence to corroborate the modeling results. We've seen the Kuroshia warming. We've seen the warming of the Kouroshia extension. We've seen the North Atlantic warm. The entire chain of environmental changes, i.e. higher global temperatures, reduced ice and snow, uh, enhanced only new events, is anteceded by the change in mid-ocean seismic activity. This is referred to as what we call Granger causality, and it strongly infers that a cause, i.e., one change occurs first, i.e., the change in thermal haline uh, intensity, drives a time-dependent set of other variables. Other that is, other perturbations occur afterwards. So, this this is an, an interesting. Uh, uh, Epistemological construct. So ultimately, understanding Earth's climate is a classic epistemological problem. Okay, that's the old you know elephant. Uh, if you take a bunch of people only seeing one piece of the elephant, they describe an elephant as a different thing: it's a thing, it's a tree, it's a wall, but nobody's seeing the big picture. This takes a look at the big picture, and one of the problems I'm having, of course, in trying to to get people to to um, Embrace this, if you talk to the atmospheric scientists, that just want to talk to the atmosphere. You talk to the geologists, and they say, well, there's just not enough heat down there. You talk to the astrophysics guy and say, well, the solar variability is not, is not playing along with this. And it's, everybody's playing to their own specialty. As I've always said, if you were to go see a cardiologist with a broken finger, they would find a heart problem for you. I mean, this is this is how the sciences work these days. Nobody's doing this sort of integrative work. So, we're just now beginning to grasp the complexity of the climate system. I mean, the the drifting of plates over, over very vast stretches of time, of course, um, has a huge impact. The distribution of land, water, um, this this effectively then sets up the system of currents on the planet. Sun, uh, sunspots, solar intensity, radiation, we know that that varies. Sub-aerial eruptions, of course, can cool the planet. Uh, we know the Krakatoa eruption, for example, where we ended up with a year without a summer. Underwater, changes to the thermal haline, and of course the Milankovitch cycles that has changes in Earth's orbit. We know that all of these things impact climate, and I think what we need to do is come up with comprehensive models, as opposed to just looking at one variable. In the case of the, um, uh, the catastrophists, they're saying, the only thing that's really causing this is CO2, and CO2, is a very weak greenhouse gas, and the human contribution to the entire greenhouse gas um, at best, at best, is less than 1%. And they're saying this is the control knob, and yet they're ignoring all this other stuff, which just, it just makes me crazy. So to quote uh, one, of, one of our science heroes, Alfred Wegner, he says, scientists still do not appear to understand sufficiently that all Earth scientists must contribute evidence towards unveiling the state of our planet. It is only by combing the information furnished by all the Earth sciences that we can hope to determine truth here. If you talk to atmospheric scientists, they don't know anything about the oceanographic literature. They know very little about it. Again, if you talk to the astrophysicists, they don't know anything about uh, submarine geology. And this is, I think this is a fundamental error in the way we've approached this problem. We need to sit down and look at all of the system's components. We need to look at the geothermal component, we need to look at changes in solar radiation, uh, changes in cloud cover, et cetera, and to understand the feedbacks. Excuse me. We're having a high pollen day down here today. Uh, And of course, now we see that there's all sorts of nasty things happening in in this area. the sign says and also, you know, all scientists agree when you say to the ones who don't, we're seeing a tremendous amount of censorship in the climate sciences. My initial paper on this, uh, which I published back in 2016, uh, was rejected by nine journals. And uh, some journals wouldn't even review it. As one journal wrote back to me, a very prominent journal said, oh, well, this is kind of interesting, but don't you know the carbon dioxide is what's causing the globe to warm? We're going, oh, 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 don't fill me in on that one, please. I'm sorry I came up with a different idea. But we're seeing a tremendous amount of censorship. Um, the peer review process, I think, is horribly broken. I think it's become horribly corrupted. Um, I, call it, I don't call it peer review anymore. I call it steer review, that these editorial boards just steer research into a certain, a, a fixed funnel or a paradigm. Uh, that has an agenda attached to it. And uh, this, this is really sad. This The, the system is very broken. Uh, there's a lot of money, a lot of power, and a lot of influence tied into the peer review process, and that means you're taking out of the system. We need to get back to a much more objective um, system of evaluating research. And of course, the peanuts cartoon that there, trust the science is the most anti-science statement ever. Questioning science is how you do science Questioning the science is the science, and we're finding that this this uh, this sort of thought has been uh, squelched tremendously. And it's 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 very upsetting, and I, I, don't, I don't know where we go with this. Uh, we just have to keep putting it out there, and hopefully, at some point, somebody's going to get uh, uh, somebody's getting wise to it and so say, "This is what we have to do." Some of the criticisms I've gotten on this are just are just ridiculous. I, I mean. I, I've of of heard some of the most absurd things by fairly reputable people in the field, and I just I just have to laugh it off.
1: And um, thank you. This is was, this was, uh, all I have for the prepared presentation. Do you have any ideas or predictions about what's going to happen in the next forty years or between now and twenty one hundred? So I think I think that
0: there is a cyclical. We know of the, the sixty year cycle uh, that does operate.
1: And I believe
0: it's tied to seismic activity,
1: yeah, uh, do you have thoughts on what is causing that 60 year cycle to happen every sixty uh, years i I think I'd get a Nobel Prize if I had that one figured out that's it's
0: It's very hard to figure out we We know that there are periods of general quiescence in the system. all I'm trying to do right now is just find some some indicators. I'm just trying to find the uh Sort of the keys to the kingdom over here. What is telling us what's going on? I'm looking for a drop in the seismic signal. If the seismic signal starts to drop, then we can start to make some predictions. And the seismic sy- signal has not dropped; it's remained consistently high uh, since. Uh, actually, it's been, it's been very high since about 2000, 2001. So I'm I'm looking for that. If I'm right, and that seismic signal does come through, then we can start making predictions, knowing that there's a two-year lead time to all this. So I'm I'm hopeful, but hopeful is a lot lot different from being uh, knowledgeable.
1: Um, If there is a 60-year cycle and it flips every 60 years, uh, what's the starting? Is it 1995, 60 years from that, or where, where do we start? Yeah, you completely cycle through because
0: don't forget we had a cooling period back in the 60s and 70s. We had warming back in the 40s and 50s. And it's it's 3030, 30 30, 30 years of warming, 30 years of cooling. So we're right about at the 30 years of warming. If it started in 95, we're now coming into 2024. That marks the 30 year, or just about the 30 year point. And I'm looking for, and I think there's a, there's a colleague out there who who's keeps saying, I want the monthly stuff. I want to see when this thing's going to flip. I said, well, I, I don't know if it's going to flip, but if it does, it might be 35-year cycle this year for, for all we know. Um, but if it's going to start to flip, it, it should start to do so relatively soon if I'm right.
1: Okay. Is there anybody else's work that you really uh, read up on and uh, think that it's uh, very good stuff? Anything you want to point out here? Um, I...
0: I like the work that, that uh, Willie Soon has done. Willie, Willie's done some very, very good work on solar cycles um, and total solar irradiance. Um, I think I'd, I'd love to do some collaborative work with Willie because what happened is we had TSI, total solar irradiance, kept going up and then it decoupled around 1970. TSI decoupled from global temperatures about 1970. And I believe at in other words, TSI uh flattened out and then it eventually started to go down. And now they're talking about it's going towards a grand solar minimum. But I think the geothermal has picked up the slack, so to speak. So I'd like to see I'd like to see some collaborative stuff if we could if we could possibly build a database looking at both seismic and the TSI data going back further.
1: All right. Uh, any other points you'd like to make before we wrap up?
0: Uh well. We're just going to keep trying here. It's uh, it's uh, you know the labor of love at this point, and and I want to I want to see if we can if we can get anything get uh, some traction on this. I monitor this stuff on a very regular basis. As I said, I have another paper that's coming out hopefully soon, and I'm trying to figure out what are the what are the key indicators, um, and stuff's coming out every day. The biologists are doing good work on this with with phytoplankton studies. There's good work being done on in the oceanographic community on this. Um, another person who's done some interesting work is uh, uh, Professor uh, uh, Wis Yim from the University of Hong Kong. He has pointed to these underwater volcanic eruptions that become subaerial eruptions, so very close to the surface. And he talks about these blobs, these hot spots that he's been finding out in the Pacific, and has tied them into different events of, of ocean warming. And uh, Wyss has done some some good work in this, so hopefully I can collaborate with him, and maybe uh, uh, we can come up with some sort of comprehensive model of all this.
1: All right, how do you spell his name? I want to look up more information about him. Uh, well, uh, Wiss W Y S S. His last name is Yim Y I M, and he's
0: a, an emeritus professor from the University of Hong Kong. I can I can send you uh, his most
1: recent presentation on this. I'll I'll, I'll get that out to you today. Okay. Yeah. And I, if there's a link to that, I might put that in the show notes too. Okay. Right. All right. Anything else? No. Uh, I'm just going to keep trying. I I appreciate you giving me an audience for this. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I'd i be interested in seeing what the feedback would, would be on some of this. All right. Uh, we'll get it put up online. So thank you very much. Arthur Vittorito. Talk to you next time. Thank you, Tom. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye.